The Gist is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. And by The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Art of Storytelling, from parents to professionals. Get up to 80% off the original price when you visit greatcourses.com slash GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 5th, 2013. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. So a correction, a clarification. In an effort to honor America's brave fighting men and women, I misspoke. I was not, in fact, on a helicopter that took enemy fire in a war zone. I would like to correct the record. We now have tape that we can play of my meeting with the pilots involved in that flight. Oh, beautiful, was it? God damn it! I had another stoppage. Okay, yes? Okay. Okay, now, now I am being informed. I would like to apologize. I have been informed that that was not footage from an actual war zone. But that was the Roy Scheider film, Blue Thunder. However, I would like to emphasize that my experiences watching Blue Thunder in a darkened theater, just me and an LAPD helicopter, was a profound and life-changing experience. Shaped me into the man I am today. If What? Okay. Wait, I'm being, I'm being told that I was in elementary school when Blue Thunder was in theaters and it was rated R. There is no way my parents would have let me see Blue Thunder. I guess you could say they were both helicopter and anti-helicopter parents. I do apologize for that slight misstatement. But, you know, I want to clarify that I did have a formative experience with an actual helicopter, and we do now have that tape. What I could tell you about this profound, life-altering helicopter experience was that we met as soulmates on Paris Island. Soulmates might be a strange phrase to use in this context. I mean it. I mean to say that we were sharp. We were sharp as knives. And whoa, what's that? We met as soulmates on Paris Island. Okay. And being told the helicopter noise you just heard was from the Billy Joel song, Goodnight Saigon, which does explain the ridiculous soulmates line. No, no, that's that's not how it happened. As I remember it, I was assigned to a helicopter. The old salts in the unit even had a nickname for the helicopter, Harold. And I remember we assisted Charlie Company and also Thomas Company and Percy Company. We humped munitions all over this little clump of dirt you won't find on any map. It was called Sodor, but we just called it the shit. We ran down terror from the sky until a local official, they called him Sir Topham Hat. What? Oh? Okay. Oh, no. All right. Being informed that this helicopter, Harold the Helicopter, is from Thomas the Tank Engine, the kiddie show. All right, look, I may never have been in a helicopter. In fact, I may never have flown at all before. But if you know what? If you all put your hands together and believe that I could fly again, here's my daughter, Allison. Allison, she flies, you know. Come on, Allison. Help daddy fly. I do. Hell, that's it. I'm out of a job, I guess. Call my agent. Sign me up for a podcast. I'm out of here. All right. 
On the show today, I have one and only one interview, not even a spiel. I recognized the rockantorial spirit of my next guest, Matthew Dix, and I just let him have it. He will offer you a tale more harrowing than anything Brian Williams ever went through or imagined he went through. Here is Matthew Dix, storyteller, who's actually been through some pretty crazy events. I'm now once more joined by Matthew Dix, a man that I've called the most interesting man in the world. He is the author of Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, Something Missing, and Unexpectedly Milo. He is a public school teacher, finalist for Connecticut Teacher of the Year, didn't win. That was, uh, I demand a recount. He is also a multiple, what's it, up to 16 now? 16, yes. 16 time mm-hmm. Moth Story Slam champion. And Matthew is here on our show to talk a little bit about his life and about his storytelling process and to mentor one of you, just listeners, who we're going to get up and you're going to work with Matt and you're going to learn to tell a better story because that's one of the things Matt does. He is the uh, co founder and producer of Speak Up, a Hartford based storytelling organization. Hello, Matt. Hello. So I'm interested in how you got here. And in talking to you in the past off mic, I got little glimpses, little sentences. And there are some sentences in your bio, things like held up at gunpoint, things like started a riot in his high school. So. You know, where do we begin? Where where'd you grow up and in what circumstances did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Blackstone, Massachusetts, which is a tiny sort of cow town in central Massachusetts. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money in the house, which makes for great stories. And I grew up with two brothers and two sisters. And it was the 1970s. It was like the time when parents had babies and kept food in the refrigerator. Yeah. And, you know, anything past that was impressive. <laughs> they were doing their job. Where were you in the birth order? I was the oldest. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I was awful to everyone. <laughs> and what did your dad do for a living, or your mom, or both? Well, I had a father and a stepfather. Yeah. Uh, my father sort of um, disappeared from my life after my parents got divorced. My stepfather was a psychiatric social worker who I did not like. That also made for excellent stories. In retrospect, were you right about that or wrong? I was so right in my estimation of him <laughs> in every regard. Uh-huh. And so growing up, uh, the the line in your bio is started a riot in your high school. Do you want to tell us anything before then to uh, inform the riot story? What kind of guy you were? What kind of high school it was? Well, the school, it was 1986 and hazing was still allowed in Massachusetts back then. And it was an enormous culture in my school. So freshmen would be hazed by seniors regularly. For... So we're talking like the Massachusetts version of Dazed and Confused. And it was sort of supported by teachers. We would walk around with signs that said, like, freshmen are losers, seniors rule. And we'd have to wear these, like, big sandwich board signs as we walked up and down hallways. Sandwich board. There was a, and I had, they built a with box. With the straps on yes. the shoulders? Right. Oh, my God. And it went up until October. Uh-huh. In October, we had the freshman-senior get acquainted dance, although they were well acquainted with us <laughs> before that dance. And if you put up with the hazing until October, yeah. it sort of went okay for you. Yeah, I hear that was on the Abu Ghraib schedule, too. They yeah. just never got around to it. Yeah. But I didn't approve. Like, I was just a kid who never wanted to go along with things, you know, the contrarian. And so I started producing flyers about the seniors who were beating me up because there was, there was some legitimate, like, violence involved, too. And I'd stand in the front of my school in the morning and pass flyers out to people that said things like, Dan is a wimp, seniors are losers, big boys like to beat up on little boys, and as you can imagine, it did not go well for me. Were you a revolutionary leader? Were you a hero to the freshmen? I was um, the only idiot who was stupid (laughs) enough to do this, and it just got worse and worse for me as we went along, and about 
a week before the freshman senior get acquainted dance, I started plastering the school with my flyers, like hanging them up everywhere that I could. And so my principal, Mr. Powers, yeah. called me into the, his office and he told me he was suspending me for three days for inciting riot upon myself. Yeah, this is exactly what Mubarak did, I think, in, <laughs> in the square outside during the Arab Spring, punished the protesters. Yeah, so it was terrible. Yeah. yeah. And this is the only time my mother ever came to school. She, he called my mother and said, I can't guarantee Matt's safety at the dance, so I'm going to suspend him for three days, and that way he can't come to the dance as well. And uh, my mother didn't really know about what was going on. So the night of the dance, I left. The, I was leaving the house to well, go to the dance. Well, was she upset with you? Who Was she upset with the school? Um, no. It's she so was... hard to imagine. I mean, it's 1986. It seems like 1886. But it's so hard to imagine this set of circumstances. I mean, today, you or I as parents, obviously nothing like this could go on. But if it did, we'd be incensed at the school. Right. I mean, I tell my students it's pre-helicopter. You know, there, there were no helicopters flying over me at the yeah. time. I think my mother was... only existed in Leonardo da Vinci's imagination. I, yeah. yeah, I just think my mother said, okay, yeah. we should keep them safe. That sounds good. And so I was home. But the night of the dance, I left. I was leaving the house, and my mother called me back in. And um, I sat down, and like it was a real conversation I had with my mother, which I didn't have a lot of. But I told her what had been happening, how important it was for me to go to that dance and show them that I wasn't afraid. So she went with me yeah. and tried to get me in. You were and 14. I was, yeah, 14. Yeah. And she didn't get me in, so I didn't get to go to the freshman scene to get acquainted dance. And when did the riot start? Well, the riot started because I just get, kept getting beaten up up until then. So what Mr. Powers called a riot was really just me getting the crap beaten out of me yeah. constantly. It was a riot of fists to your skull it and was. spleen. Yeah, yeah I, got, I got sent to the hospital in an ambulance really? at one point. Yeah, it was really a... It was a rotten time. Oh my God! Can you imagine the liability? Well, I'm. I keep, uh, you know, forcing 2015 thought processes on this time, and that's right. just wrong. Well, it doesn't yeah. feel that long ago. No, you know, because it was yeah. when I was a kid, and if I acknowledge that it was a long time ago, I got to acknowledge yeah, that I'm true. an old man, and yeah. I can't do that. It's that march towards mortality thing. Right. If this were a movie version of this, people would come to respect you, and the big bully would say there'd be that scene where he'd say, you know, I learned that you maybe had more toughness than all of us did, but it was just there was nothing like that. No, I mean, in most stories, that's the case. When I tell that story on the stage. You know, that five second, that most important moment for me, it's when my mother comes to the school, which she never does again until my graduation. She stands up for me for the first time. So we fail. I don't get into the dance. Nothing gets better. But I've got that moment with my mother where she stood up for me and tried to help me when I really needed it. How'd that shape you as a person going forward? I guess a lot of times with my parents, I think about my stories and they're sort of the anti-lesson. I think about the things I wish I had had. But part of me, too, thinks, you know, when I let my daughter go out into the backyard and I stop looking for a little while, I think, like, I turned out okay. You know, it was a rough road, but I turned out okay. And I want my daughter to not have the helicopters as well. So I think about how my parents let me do really whatever the hell I wanted. And I try to give my daughter a little bit of that. But yeah. I, want my, I want my daughter to have that moment where she knows her dad stands up for her. After high school, did you go right to college? No, I got kicked out of my house. Um, so I moved in with guys who were going to college, and I did all of the college things yeah. except attend any classes, which is an amazing way to spend three years. I like highly it recommend it. It does free it. up a lot more time to say pledge a frat. It was the best <laughs> time. And the only problem is you end up homeless at yeah. the end of the three years when yeah. all your friends have jobs. But less student debt. That's true. <laughs> 
I had no de- well I, I owned a car that I had a car payment on which became my house so I guess it was technically my mortgage but and which uh, college were you fake attending I was not fake attending any I was literally just living in a house with a guy who was going to Bryant University uh-huh. and I just um, we had parties and I was managing a McDonald's and hosting many many parties and doing all those college things that you do which town is Bryant in Bryant is in Lincoln, Rhode Island. I was living in Attleboro, Massachusetts at the time. Right. And that's a business school, Bryant? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He got a computer degree. Yeah. So I I wanted to go to college desperately, but no one had ever said the word college to me. Not a guidance counselor, not my parents. So I just didn't think it was for me. I figured poor kids don't go to college. Well, were you a smart kid in high school? I was. I mean, I graduated in the top 10% of my class. And, and of I, those others in the, how big a uh, high school class was? Like a hundred kids. Okay. So of the other 10, did the rest of them go to college? Yeah. I, okay. I, we've established your high school's weird and possibly sucked, but there's no one to like mention the word college to a kid who's graduating in the top 10. You sound exactly like my wife. <laughs> she says this to me all the time. I don't understand it. Honestly, I remember I would sit in class and kids would leave for the guidance office to like go practice their SATs and yeah. things like that. And I just sat there and waited for someone to come for me. And no one ever came. And I just finally realized maybe it's because my parents have no money. They don't come to talk to me because I can't pay for college anyway. And we will get back to Matthew Dix. And he's even going to tell you how you could get involved with storytelling, how he might mentor. But first, a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is Squarespace. Squarespace 7 is the newest kind of Squarespace. If you know how good Squarespace 6 was, I mean, Squarespace 7, it's a prime number. I don't want to overpromise, but they do have Google Apps. They do have Getty Images. They do have new templates and cover pages. We're talking about beautiful design. It's simple. It's powerful. They have great support via live chat and email. For only $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. And every website comes with a free online store. Start a trial today. No credit card required. And you can start building your website today and building it well and building it beautifully. When you do, use the offer code GIST. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. Okay, so let's go back to you being a teenager, upper teen, early 20s. McDonald's. Right. How'd you get that plum job? At 16, my friend Danny Pollock told me that they were paying $4.65 an hour as opposed to the place across the street that was paying $4.50 an hour. There you go. And so I um, interviewed and got the job on the spot, surprisingly. So that was at 16. And at 17, I was managing the restaurant. And you're probably managing people a lot older than you. It's sort of a thing that I'm very, very good at. It's yeah. terrible when you're very, very good at something that pays slightly above minimum wage. But but. Being good at managing people is important. Why Why do you think you're good at it? Being an older sibling? Yeah, being an older sibling. I think that I'm sort of a quick decision maker. Mm-hmm. And that's part of like running a McDonald's is you make fast decisions and you try to keep everyone happy. And I learned quickly that if you work twice as hard as everybody, they will all like you. And when they like you, they show up. And 50% of running a McDonald's is getting people to show up when you've scheduled them. So I always had my people with me and they always liked me because I worked hard. Yeah. That, again, even though it's a McDonald's and even though it's minimum wage, seems like a lesson that can apply out to a lot of things. Yeah. The manager who's not the hardest worker, in my mind, has never worked, no matter what the job is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I remember there's a 50-year-old guy named Lou who couldn't fill Chicken McNugget boxes fast enough. Mm -hmm. And he was sort of making, he was making a decent salary compared to my nothing that I was making. And I just remember thinking, like, how do you get to this point in your life where you can't fill up Chicken McNugget boxes fast enough? So how many people were under you at the height of your power? 
At the height of my power, um, well, I managed McDonald's for about 12 years. Jeez. Until I was arrested and tried for stealing money from McDonald's, I was soaring through the company. So, you know, maybe 100 people are employed by a restaurant at a time. Okay. So you would only manage one restaurant at a time? Yes. Uh-huh. And when did that day came that we've talked about on the show where you were held up at gunpoint? At that time, I was, I had already been arrested for stealing money. And I was working the night shift in a McDonald's. And I was working at a bank during the day while I was waiting for my trial. For stealing money. Yeah. The bank hired you. I know. And the bank that hired me yeah. was the bank that was testifying against me in the trial for the loss of the money. I know. So I'm working at a McDonald's overnight. And, um, Do you see why I call him the most interesting <laughs> man in the world? Okay. Or, or the, the biggest liar. Or the most tragic. Yeah, yeah. I was working an overnight shift. Uh, it was like 1130. And I was probably 23 at the time. And these were guys who had robbed a Taco Bell earlier in the week and killed some people. What town? Uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Tough town. Yeah. I was counting the money at the safe. They came in through the window. They broke the window. And when I heard the window break, I knew what was happening. How many people were in the store at the Four. time? Four. It was close. Yeah, it was close. Yeah. Four of us. Uh, one of them ran into the freezer and I was really, I was pissed because I know that when you hide, if you surprise people like this with guns, you end up dead. Yeah. But I saw him run into the freezer. For reasons I'll never understand, I took all the money and I threw it down the chute in the back of the safe, the one that you can't get into that part of the safe without the key. And there's Mm -hmm. a sign that says, you know, manager has no access. And so when they got to me, they quickly realized that this safe doesn't have very much money. Yeah. So you showed them. They said, show me the money. You said, I, I, there is no money. They said, bullshit. You said, look, I'll show you. Right. Is that it? You open and, well, it up. There, there was the box yeah. I couldn't open. Right. There's the box that like only the owner has the key to. Mm-hmm. And I said, it says manager doesn't have key. They didn't believe me. So, um, you know, they laid me down and they put guns to my head and they pulled triggers. Uh, there were no bullets in the guns, but. They did that to intimidate you? Yeah. To try to get me to, to open the safe. Okay. How many were there? Uh, there were three guys. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about it now, does it bring up more than painful memories? Is there... Yeah, I am mean... Am I putting you through something? I'm okay right now. Yeah. I actually, I told this story at the Moth and I sort of fell apart and I don't remember telling it. Um, yeah. I had post-traumatic stress disorder in a real way for about 10 years and it sort of never goes away. So um, as I was telling you that, I felt the heat run through my body. Uh, but I'm better talking about it now. Okay. So when you're on the ground... Are you trying to access any strategies? I know we call it something like survival mode, but looking back, what kinds of things were you trying to do and say to keep yourself alive? I remember the first thing I did was I took note of their clothing because they were wearing masks. And I remember thinking, like, I should note, like, what their shoes are because those are going to be different. And I was on the ground anyway. And then, um, you know, when they put the gun to the back of my head, um, and they did it more than once. I didn't know what they were going to do the first time, you mm-hmm. know. So the first time that it happened, it was um, it was the worst of the moments. After, after that, you kind of hope. I remember hoping that, like, well, if they faked it once, maybe this time they'll fake it too. Yeah. And maybe they'll fake it this time too. Eventually, I just started crying. And I think probably it was the crying that convinced them, you know, that I was telling the truth. Because even if they're convinced, you know... That doesn't mean they're going to make the decision not to kill you. Right. And I knew they had killed someone in Taco Bell. That news was out there. The police had already met with us um, earlier in the week and let us know that there's guys, and they described them as crazy guys, like not methodical burglars, but people who are just out for money and will kill you. Mm -hmm. So listen to what they tell you to do. So I tried to listen. And um, there was a teenage girl in the the place with us. I remember being really worried about her uh, as well. 
The guy who went in the freezer, did they ever look in the freezer? No, thankfully they didn't. And that guy was, he's an interesting guy. He didn't speak any English either. And I was worried about that too because, you know, if they can't get you to answer questions, that's a problem as well. Right. And who's the fourth person in the store? And there was a guy, you know, sort of a grill guy, an older guy. And what what was, how did he survive this thing? I mean, what did he do through it? They all laid down right with me. And thankfully they left everybody else alone. You Mm -hmm. know, it's easy to identify the manager with the uniform and things like that. So the others were untouched in any way. And actually, what the guy doesn't didn't even really know what was going on. He sort of laid down and the grill guy. You mean? Yeah, the yeah, grill guy yeah. just sort of put himself, you know, in another place and was very bad at terms of helping the police because he didn't remember anything. So they realize they can't get the money. How do you get them out of there? Or how do they decide to leave? They took all the coins out of the door, all right. um, and they took the petty cash, and then they left. And they told us not to move for three minutes. And and um, I did not move for a very very long time. Okay. They ripped the phone out of the wall too. So. What was your then interactions with the police like afterwards? I got sent to the hospital because they also hit me over the head several times with the gun. I thought I was fine, but then like the hospital was very close and I couldn't remember where the hospital was. So those interactions I don't remember as well. I remember they asked me questions. I thought it was going to be sort of law and order I don't think existed at the time, but I Mm -hmm. thought it was going to be a serious like come into the police station and talk to us. And it was much more cursory than I would have ever expected. Sort of tell us what happened. Okay, sounds good. They had actually carjacked a guy earlier that night and killed him, and that was the car they were driving. I remember there was a lot of interest in that because there was someone dead in that situation. Later on, they robbed a bank, and they all ended up dead. They got shot and killed at the bank. Two got shot and killed at the bank, and one held up in his um, apartment and either got killed or killed himself. So, okay, so your head injuries heal your emotional injuries. I mean, when did you realize you really needed to, because you just told me before you had post-traumatic stress. Of course you did. When did you realize you needed to get that addressed? And how'd you go about doing that? My wife, you know, my wife moved in with me and um, we got engaged and I would wake up every night screaming, just yelling. And I stopped sleeping. I didn't sleep very much. I still don't sleep much now, but I really slept very little. And my wife said, hey, maybe you shouldn't be waking up in the night screaming. And I remember telling her that, like, that's, it's just my thing. You know, like, <laughs> some people play tennis, I scream at night. We all have a niche. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, but she sent me to therapy, which was good. I, I met a great guy, and um, it took a long time, because when you have post-traumatic stress disorder, the only thing you don't want to do is talk about what happened. Yeah. And the only way to actually recover from it is to talk about what happened. Oh. So you spend a lot of time... In the first half of that sentence, I was worried I was making you relive it, but in the second half, now maybe I think I'm helping you. Right. No, you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but we spend a lot of time staring at each other. You know, it was like an hour of staring at each other and yeah. him trying to get me to talk about things and me talking about other things instead. Your healing process, was it about breakthroughs or about slow realizations? I, you know, I don't know. I know that he was really interested, my therapist. I used to hear the click of the gun. All the time. I'd be walking down the street and I'd hear that click, that first click of the gun. And he was really interested in getting that out of me. You know, he said, you're always going to have nightmares. and But you can't live your life awake hearing the click of a gun that you think is going to kill you. And when you would hear it, did you jump? Did you start? It was terrifying. And, it, and did, then it, it ruined you for a little while afterwards. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes a long time. Yeah. And a, about a year later, I didn't even notice that it had disappeared. And I remember there was a day when he asked me, when was the last time you heard that click of the gun? And I remember thinking, I have no idea when the last time I heard that click of the gun was. And you haven't heard it since? No. No. Um, Anything else that has triggered you? Yeah. I mean, it triggered me on stage at the Moth. Yeah. I didn't understand it at the time. A therapist later told me that if you stand in front of a thousand people and tell this story and you don't sort of 
mentally prepare yourself, you're going to have a post-traumatic stress moment, which is what I had. Yeah. So I told that story. It actually turned out great. I've never listened to it because when I started to listen to it, it didn't sound like me. It sounded like someone else. And when I got off the stage, my wife, I sat down next to her and she said, what the hell was that? Mm. And I said, I have no idea what just happened. I, and I really honestly sort of didn't remember telling the story. And then later on... What did on, she mean by what the hell was that? Well, she, she didn't knew, hear the details? She knew what the story was. We yeah. had like, you know, she heard my story. Yeah. She knew what it should have been. And when I got on the stage, I did not tell it in the way I planned on telling it. It came out completely differently. Yeah. It sort of just came out as an emotional mess rather than the carefully crafted, you know, piece that I had prepared. So she did was... Did you win a, that night slam? I didn't. I came in second. That's why. Yeah. The emotion was so powerful, but, you know, you still have to have organization. Right. Yeah. Well, the audio guy told me that the fact that I kept saying I was so happy that they were dead, he told me, you said it like four times, like, I'm so happy those guys are dead, over and over again. He said, that probably hurt you a little bit. Yeah. The freakiness. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so I interviewed Megan Dom, and she went through a near-death experience, and she said she didn't have revelations, and that was maybe annoying to other people. Did you have revelations or is it insensitive of me to want this to uh, (laughs) redound in some sort of dramatically satisfying way? I mean, ironically, I heard that segment. I've twice been brought back to life from CPR. So twice I've had near-death experiences prior to my robbery. I experienced the same thing she did after each one of those experiences. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I was 10, I got stung by a bee. I didn't realize I was allergic you know, went out and got brought back. And when I was 17, I was in a real bad car accident. And again, nothing changed in my life. I ended up going and living with guys and drinking beer and not going to college. It wasn't until the robbery. The robbery changed my life because in those other near-death experiences, I didn't know that I was about to die. You know, when I get stung by the bee and I can't breathe and I pass out and then I stop, you know, my heart stops, I don't see it coming. So it doesn't really have the impact on me. And the same thing with the car accident. You know, I'm lying on the side of the road, but I don't know I'm about to die. But when the gun's on the back of my head, I really believe I'm about to die. And I feel terrible about, like, sort of where I am in my life. I remember just this awful regret that, like, I, God, I had just wasted so much time. And so today, all of the things that I do are in great response to the knowledge of how easily I can die. What was that, 20 years ago? Yeah, it was... um. That was 1993, maybe. So. 93. Yeah. So how, how did you begin to change afterwards? I, I, I had been arrested. So I had to get through this trial, and I had to be found not guilty. Okay, well, let's spend right. a minute. Let's go back. <laughs> Sorry. Fill me in. On, no, I know. This was bad storytelling yeah. <laughs> form, because as you say, it has to go, this happened, then that right. happened. But I wanted to get to, uh, you brought up the robbery, needed to go there. So let's go back a little bit. Why were you arrested, and how'd that play out? A deposit disappeared. Yeah. A deposit that I was responsible for. I, br- I was supposed to be- bring three to the bank, only two showed up. I lost it. Probably. Back in the old days, you had to open your car with a key. I put the three deposits up on the top of my roof. I opened my door, probably brought two down. One slid off the back of the car. Are we talking about cash? Yeah, cash. $7,000. Yeah. So um, the money disappears. These things happen, weirdly, at McDonald's more often than you would ever imagine. You start to think of money as... Which is weird because they do pay their employees, as you said, 10%, 10 cents more than the people across the street. It's true. Figured they'd get, yeah. You just start to think about money as like cheeseburgers it's the same thing you don't think of it as money anymore so you become less careful with it so we go to the police station to report the loss for insurance purposes and i run into a police officer who's convinced that i'm guilty Mm -hmm. and um over a period of about a month there's questioning and investigation and he eventually arrests they arrest me and 
Uh, it's about the time that my buddy's graduating from college. So he's leaving. He's moving to Hartford, Connecticut, and I am stuck in Massachusetts. I'm not allowed to leave the state. I don't have a place to live. I end up homeless. Eventually, I get taken in by a family of Jehovah Witnesses. Okay. They put me in a room off their kitchen with a guy named Rick who speaks in tongues in his sleep and the family's indoor pet goat. Uh, the three of us share the room together. I know. <laughs> I'm sleeping. People, I call him the most interesting man <laughs> in the world. Go ahead. So I spend 18 months living with the Jehovah Witnesses, working at a bank that will eventually testify against me in the trial, and a McDonald's, which will also testify against the only me. Ba- it was the only bank in town, so you had to... No, it just bank. happened to be a big bank, South Shore Bank. But why'd the... they hire you if they knew this was hanging over they your head? Didn't know. Oh, they didn't know. You just, you don't have to say things. Don't check the box. Right, yeah. don't check the box. Huh. But So I go to trial, and I get a great attorney who charges me more money than you could ever imagine. And I am, after one day, I'm declared not guilty. Oh, you don't even, it doesn't even go to a jury. It, we take a judge trial first. And yeah. if the judge, you can then go to a jury if you want. So we go to the judge first. The judge's last line to me is, I think you're probably guilty, son, but there's not enough evidence here to support the claim. Living with the goat, did that make a moth story? I haven't told that story yet, but it will be a moth story. It's a good story. I liked that goat, you know. The arrest and trial, was that a moth story? No, not yet. You know, again, those are going to be good stories, but you really can't connect to that as well as you can connect to something smaller and, you know, more meaningful. So is the trick, though, to tell it as best a story as you can or to build in some more, you know, bona fide, not constructed places of um, recognition for the audience, human moments within that story. Yeah. yeah. So that story is probably going to be two stories. The first one will probably be just my arrest because I spend six hours in a jail cell and it's the first time. If you've never been in a room that you're not allowed to leave, that's a feeling that it's hard to convey to someone that you're not allowed to ever leave this room until someone tells you you can leave it. And that's a five seconds that I think I want to tell people about. So I take that moment and I work my way back from it. And what I do is I try to think about how did that change me? And then I will try to find a point in my life where I was not like how I was in that jail cell. And it'll bring you from A to B. And so what Matt Dix is going, Matt, what you're going to do, what we've been uh, soliciting so far is people to call in and to pitch the idea of a story and you'll help them with it. We'll keep those phone lines open for just a little while longer. We've gotten dozens and dozens of people calling so far. Of the ones, we haven't made a decision yet, your, your, dear listener, your story could be the one, <laughs> but of the ones you've heard, a few commonalities. I don't think we want a story like the how you met your wife story, how you met your husband in general? Yeah, not unless, you know, not unless you did it in a room with a goat and a guy who spoke in tongues. Um, I mean, those stories are good, yeah. and, but they, there's got to be something that's going to be special about yeah. them in order to do that. One crazy day with the kids stories? If your crazy day involves a revelation about some, you know, dark side of your soul that you're willing to bear, then maybe yes. But you either have to show us how you've really changed as a human being, or you have to reveal something that most people don't reveal. And that's that's really good when you can do that. And the other thing, talking about the people have called already, we there's often an ineffable quality of the caller that we feel like this would be an interesting person to work with. And the thing that maybe is a little off-putting, you and I both said, is the person seems almost too polished. Is that, how do you deal with that? I have people like that in workshops as well. I think that when I come to storytelling, I try to come as humbly as possible. I've been doing it for four years, and there's people doing it much longer. So I I have a very open mind, and I will rarely tell people 
you know, sort of that I'm a great storyteller. Yeah. I often say things like, I'm trying to be a great storyteller. So if you tell me that you're a great storyteller, I say, great, go forth and enjoy your life, (laughs) but don't enjoy it with me. So, you know, we're looking for authenticity. Some of the best storytellers in The Moth are storytellers who will stutter through stories and ramble through stories. You know, they will seem the least polished, but they will also therefore seem the most authentic and the most true. If you're our, if you sound like you're coming off the radio, you're going to be less believable and we're not going to connect with you in the same way. Matthew Dix, kind of an interesting guy. We heard some of that <laughs> today. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Mike. And again, that number 304-607-GIST. Sometimes you have an ad that just fits in really well. Check out this one. The Great Courses. The Great Courses are professors giving courses, real professors. Watch them on DVD or online or CD. But the one I want to talk about today is The Art of Storytelling. From Parents to Professionals, that's the name of it. Hannah Harvey, award-winning professor and storyteller, provides an interesting and entertaining look at the power of narrative. If you like Matthew's pieces, that's great. He's only on the show every once in a while. How about having a storytelling expert at your beck and call whenever you need her to tell you how to tell stories, enhance your storytelling skills, interest your kids, bedtime stories, stories to workmates, stories that you tell yourself to get you through the day and to press the pain down into a tiny little ball. Anyway, The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary. They have over 500 courses on history, on science, on photography. You watch or listen to DVDs, CDs, streaming, digital downloads. They have an app. Here's the offer. The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses. So eight of these courses are on special, up to 80% off the original price. The Art of Storytelling is one of the courses that is available up to 80% off the original price. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. Check it out. Check out the offerings. You'll see and get a taste of what they're offering here. I think you might enjoy it. TheGreatCourses.com slash gist. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi once took heavy flack over Macho Grande. Joe Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, dodged enemy Sam's and trank darts while urinating, defecating, scratching, biting, and rubbing trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, didn't think he was going to get out of this one situation in one piece. It was Ice Capades, 1998. It's a little, little painful to talk about still. You can go to iTunes, please do, when you do, give us a review. I say that a lot, but I mean it. Slate.com slash gist email is the place to go to sign up for our email. So's yo, it's an app. Once you download the app, sign up for a podcast. We're on Facebook.com slash slate gist. So I remember this one time we were flying across the Bay of Willows. It was Willow Bay. I think we were three clicks from the sortie. I remember because the sound guy kept complaining about the clicks. And then, like a Frisbee or a Super Bowl or a silly string, whammo! Mayday! Mayday! I yelled, trying desperately to think of any rhyme with a month that I could. August sawdust! Uh, April maple! Uh, June swoon! But I was headed into the drink, which is understandable, even if it would risk my three-month sobriety chip. We were going down in this body of water, this gulf. We were going down in flames, engulfed, engulfed in flames. And suddenly I woke up in a dry sweat. And there, playing on a loop on my DVD player, was Robert Duvall's scenes from Apocalypse Now. It's a memory I won't soon forget or fictionalize. Thanks for listening.
When you're writing a period spy drama set in the 80s, details matter. At least they do to the creators of FX's The Americans. They chart the date and time of each scene on a 1983 calendar so they can get every detail right. We really have a great clip of a TV show that we want to put on in that scene, but it was on a Wednesday night, and we just won't use it. We We're don't just do uncompromising, it. even though nobody but the three of us in that room looking at the calendar would ever realize it. Join us each week during Season 3 of The Americans for the Slate TV Club Insider Podcast. Search for Slate Americans in your favorite podcast app.